you're you're uh i don't know you're more than human fucking idiot that's what i am (laughs) An idiot. No, so, man, you're. You, I don't. I don't know. How do you find the energy? That's the question. I, I. It's all out of fear. It's the same reason that I. That like after I lost weight, like I didn't. I never like. I've put like seven or eight pounds back on, but like, uh, I've never put it back because I'm just terrified of putting it back on. Is uh, my entire life is based out of fear. It's no way constant to constant anxiety. Just function constant. out of constant anxiety. I think that's yeah. what I do anyway. So you know. Really? Yeah. That's yeah. That, yeah. That's why our beards are gray. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. That's all anxiety right there. Yep. Yeah, it's anxiety beard. <laughs> Welcome to the Rice of Ricky said ch- Nope. <laughs> Fucking A. <laughs> Welcome, oh, to the- <laughs> Welcome to the Carl Andrew Record Club. Yeah, I'm doing a lot of Rickies right now. A music podcast from the Rights to Ricky Sanchez. I'm Spike Eskin and Mootloo. Mootloo. What's yo, up, yo, 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 yo. Our intro song is from Marion Hill. It is called I Should Let You Know. I think I saw on Instagram. Well, the Marion Hill. Coming. New is that coming, right? new music? Is that what's coming? I, I think so. I, I wasn't sure. I saw the promo too, but it was uh, it was exciting to see it because, uh, you know, Marion Hill and the and the and the, the Carl, Carl. There's a deep connection there now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, Marion Hill, Philly band. They're band. They're two people. It's a. I don't. I I guess. I would Philly call them group? an electro pop duo. Electro pop. A Philly electro pop duo that does our intro music. Yeah, I, it is wonderful to see all of the bands like Instagrams going yeah. like crazy. And then I saw there's a festival in, I've, I've brought this festival up before, but there's a, a festival in Asbury Park in September called See Here Now that Pearl Jam is headlining one of the nights. And the only reason that I, I knew it is because Gang of Youths might play it or whatever, but I saw a note from See Here Now that they're sold out for September, and I'm just like, here we go, baby. Well, here we are, go. Shit's happening. Are amped up, man. They're, mm-hmm. I think I read something that just like the demand for ticket sales is, you know, over the top. And it makes sense, I mean, because people have been anxious to go to shows, but it it's kind of cool to see it roaring back, you know? And I got to say, we have a number of car alumni who, you know, are getting back out there. I saw... With Wild Marion Pink. Hill, yeah, Wild Pink just announced a tour. JB uh, Brubaker and August Burns Red announced yep. a huge tour. Like, yeah, I don't know, must be thirty plus markets or something. Yeah, well, I mean, they're this for every for every artist touring is their main business. But August Burns Red is a touring band, man. Like, they're just they tour and tour and tour and tour and tour and sell a lot of fucking t shirts. But tour and tour and tour, so it's not surprising at all. I think I saw they have a tour with Killswitch Engage actually. Really? Yeah, they have that tour is coming up. I think that tour might be 2022, but they're going to tour with Killswitch. And then I haven't seen anything from Honus yet, but not only is it the Carl, like a bunch of Carl alumni, it's the list of Carl alumni who said there weren't going to be concerts until 2023. Like that's, <laughs> that's all of them. All we need is Honus Honus to get to, to have a tour as well with Man Man. And we'll have, we'll have everybody back on tour. It's that's good. Of- that's only a matter of time because that is such a great record. And, you know, he needs to be going out and playing those songs. For although, sure. although by now he's probably already thinking about the next record, but uh, I, I just, those songs are so, they're such a great, like theatrical, yeah, S- musically satisfying vibe to that album. I-, I love it. It's like it's it's a record I keep coming back to. It's a thousand mootloos. I imagine by the time Man Man tours again, there will be another record. But he never got to tour on this record, so I imagine they will play some of those as well. Yeah. So, 
The Carl Andrew Record Club is a music appreciation podcast where we talk about two albums every podcast. The One of the albums is a listener-suggested album. The other one comes for me or Moot, an album that we're passionate about. To suggest an album, do it in Apple Podcasts. Scroll down, open your Apple Podcast app right now if you listen. Scroll down, go to our show, scroll down, tap five stars, and in the review, leave the album that you want us to review, and then grip it, rip it. Move, move on. on. Move on. <laughs> so today's podcast about two albums, as I said. The Spike Moot choice will be mine. It is Say Anything's Is a Real Boy. And the listener suggestion, this is a controversial one, only for me. <laughs> I was surprised when you sent me this. I was like, what's going on here? How did this happen? Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska, suggested by Apple user Fade the Rally. I recognize Fade the Rally from Twitter. There's no way that Fade the Rally doesn't know that I am anti-Springsteen. I was looking at the list of suggestions. I am, I'm not famous for a lot of my music opinions, but I would say one of the ones that has stuck because it tends to generate conversation is my distaste for Springsteen. And I was looking at the album suggestions and I'll read the, the review here. Excellent podcast for music lovers. Both Spike and Mootloo are clearly passionate about music, which comes through whether they're discussing an album they love or dislike or are indifferent about. Thanks to this podcast, I've checked out a few albums I would have never listened to otherwise. And then he suggests Siamese Dream from Pumpkins, The Walkmen, Bow and Arrows, The Get Up Kids, Something to Write Home About, and Springsteen's Nebraska. And I just thought to myself, if the idea of our podcast is to show appreciation for things that maybe we wouldn't originally like or wouldn't originally choose to listen to. And, you know, what we always talk about is even if it's something that you're not into, find something that you like about it. What would be a greater test of our commitment to the mission of the podcast than selecting an album from an artist that I have voiced my distaste for? And yeah, this is the... This is the defining characteristic of the podcast that you would take on uh, an album from the boss, even though you, you know it's been a thread from the time we started that you're not a fan. Although you're a fan of the bands he's influenced, so mm -hmm. uh, that means you were maybe partially, like inadvertently, a fan. I, I don't know. Well, I thought this was a lot more interesting. We've had a couple of Taylor Swift suggestions, and I've suggested before that I'd, I'd like that's another one that I'm not, and those are the only two that I've I've said. And I thought the Taylor Swift one would be boring because I do think she has good songs. She has a number of good songs. I just think she's uninspiring. And I think she's actually like, people look deeper into her work than I think is there. Like they, they almost analyze her music the way they would a non-pop star. Anyway, I just didn't think it would be that interesting because it would be like, oh yeah, that's a good song. That's another good song. Right. Springsteen is a more interesting scenario in which there are, and we'll get to them when we get to the Springsteen album, but there are tons of artists that every time I tweet about the artist, some Springsteen fan will go, you know, yeah, they cite as their number one influence, Bruce Springsteen. So I thought it would be an interesting conversation. Yeah, I think the boss is one of those artists that, you know, people define who they are mm -hmm. by being a fan of the boss. He's one of those artists. There's certain bands that it's a part of your 
personality almost. It's a it's part of how you define yourself that you are a Springsteen fan. I, I admire that he's made that type of connection. There's a lot of music fans out there who are in that category of you mm-hmm. know diehard Springsteen fans, especially around here. Especially around here. Oh yeah, yeah, for sure. So we'll get to that second. We'll do my album first, and we will do Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska second. My album is Say Anything's A Real Boy. We, we went back to the emo category for this one, or pop punk, emo, whatever you want to call it. Say Anything is a Real Boy is in the, the, is a seminal album in that category, whether it is third wave emo, whether it is second wave pop punk, wherever you put it, this sits in a very important place for a lot of people who like this particular music. So first, just like some background on Say Anything. Say Anything is basically the brainchild of Max Bemis, who is the lead singer and plays guitar and on this album plays everything but drums. And the band came together in 2000. Say Anything, originally all one word it was. It was just Hmm. Say Anything. Like Limp, Limp Biscuit went from two words to one word and Say Anything went from two... Uh, no, yeah, Limp Bizkit went from two to one and Say Anything went from one to two. In any case, puts out a couple of EPs on their own and it gains some traction in the, you know, this is a fan base, sort of fan base. This kind of music is very activated by grassroots sort of stuff, you know, like they, they trade the music. They were early internet adapters. So there was a, a bit of a bidding war. There was a competition of independent labels to sign Say Anything, and they eventually sign with Doghouse Records. Max decides he wants his first album to be a rock, rock opera. In the writing of this, Max has a nervous breakdown and decides that the pressure of writing the rock opera was partially at fault for the nervous breakdown and decides no longer to write a rock opera. And now that's interesting. Interesting that you said that because the thought I kept having as I was listening is there's like a theatricality to this album. Like it's not. Mm-hmm. I didn't know that that was the concept behind it, but it feels like there's that unabashed, almost bombastic kind of thing that you could you could almost kind of see some of these songs on the stage. Yeah, and I mean like musical theater stage. So yep. it's interesting yep. that I didn't realize there's actually that intention behind it. Yeah, it's not a rock opera, and I wouldn't even call it a what's the other thing when all the songs go together, a song suite type of thing. N- no, a different thing. Rock concept op- album. Yeah. I wouldn't call it a concept album, but it does, it's definitely an album. Like all the songs fit together. There is a an ethos and a vibe and a, uh, yes, I would agree, a theatrical vibe to a, it is performative in a lot of ways, you know. Max has had like a lot of um, issues with, he's bipolar, has had drug issues. There have been 
a number of tours that have been canceled because of that. So like the fact that the pressure of that record, you know, got to him is not at all surprising. By the way, like he's like 19, 20 years old when he's writing this album too. So, so that's a lot, you know, to put on yourself. Kobe Linder is the guy who played drums on this album and Max plays everything else. They put out is a real boy on in 2004 on Doghouse Records, and then Say Anything signs with J Records, who is part of Sony, and oh, the Clive is, Davis label. Really? Uh, yes. And that then, seems very random to me. And Say Anything for a while was signed to Red Light Management. Which oh yeah. Is, yeah, yeah. That's a big. That's a big company. Yeah. That that makes more sense because they represent every type of mm-hmm. band. But I always thought of J as more like. Big pop, R&B, hip hop. I guess they had like Gavin DeGraw and stuff, but I wouldn't have expected this more emo type of direction to be on J Records because, you know, it was like the Clive Davis kind of thing. They re-release Is A Real Boy, which opens up with a, like with another EP with with like five or six songs on it. I I forget what the other one they released it with, but it comes out in 2006 and it, it introduces it to a whole new audience, part of that audience called, uh, part of that audience being me. And they release an actual single, a proper single, which goes to radio, doesn't do much, but gets a little bit of traction. And it was Alive with the Glory of Love, which we'll, we'll talk about. There have been a ton of records since this one. And the follow-up to this album is a double album called In Defense of the Genre, which is really, really well respected. And I but but this album is the one that sticks out. And he actually says that it is the best say anything album, which is interesting for a guy who has like seven records. And I thought his comments about it were interesting because people convinced him that it was his best record. The, the reason I like it so much is the amount of raw honesty that comes in the album in the forms of angst and humor and humor based in reality, I think. Like it's not, it's not jokes, it's just sort of irony. Like there's a lot of irony in it to sadness, to longing. And I think the lyrics are clever and the delivery is full-throated, you know, like full energy delivery in this album. Like this album, for an album that is, I think, written so well and has such clever lyrics and and some good hooks, not not in your typical way, but I think catchy songs that, that get in your head, it is fully emotional and raw and I thought before we get to like some songs and what you think of it, I thought there were some a couple of good quotes that I found from him about the album. By the way, he said that he wanted to outdo Andy. The two people he wanted to outdo with this album were Andy Warhol and Jesus. So, <laughs> well, that's uh, set the bar pretty high there. Yeah. Wow. <laughs> so about ten years ago, he was asked to rank the Say Anything albums, and he ranked Is a Real Boy number one. And he said, 
I hate my voice at the time. I think it's great for what it is, but I can't listen to it now because it was over 10 years ago. And I remember being so perfectionist about it that I would not do even less than four takes for each vocal part. I would sit there with a producer and we would just take everything apart. I needed it to be perfect or what I thought was perfect at the time. So it's like I can still remember each word I took from a different take and how frustrating certain lines were trying to get it perfect. There was so much on that record. Like I'm a diehard music fan and I was even more obsessed at the time and I knew it would be our first official record. So it drove me literally crazy and it consumed my life. I sacrificed so much quite a few emotions and body parts, and I can hear that, and it's uncomfortable. That being said, I think it's number one because I don't think when people say they like it that it's just nostalgia. I think there's part of it that's nostalgia, which is cool because I have all of those for my favorite records. Later on, he says, if I kept trying to make Is A Real Boys, I don't know, man. It's very creative. It connects very well. I love Admit It. I'm still proud that song was one of the first songs, and I still don't... And still don't... Still not that many that acknowledge the whole facade of indie rock. by the high school jocks who made your life a living hell and makes you a slave to the competitive capitalist dogma you spend every moment of your waking life bitching about. Yeah, what do you have to say for yourself? Whoa, whoa, whoa. That was before it became funny to make fun of hipsters. So I'm very proud of those things, even though in my own mind, it's juvenile and there are a million better records by a million better bands. After the affirmation of fans or friends or other bands saying, dude, this album means a lot to me, I've been able to be like, I see where you're going. It has really convinced me that it's our best record. And I love it. That's that's like a heavy, it's interesting to hear an artist that, this is, this is like a double album, right? It's interesting yeah, to hear yeah. him, you know, that he was tortured by it but realizes that it sort of transcends whatever he personally feels about it's a really interesting quote yeah and especially when you write something when you're 19 and then you're 30 and whatever you wrote when you were 19 sounds ridiculous you need other people to tell you it means a lot to me and there is a difference between that's my favorite record because it came out when i was at a certain time and there's nostalgia but that combined with the album really continues to touch people i think the reason I still listen to this album is because I love it, not because it reminds me of a time. You know, it does remind me of a time, but I also love it, even though it it spoke to me in a different way 15 years ago than it does now, but but still speaks to me. So a few songs just wanted to point out that I liked specifically and some of the lyrics from them. I mentioned the first single is Alive with the Glory of Love was the first single. And for the first single to be a pop pump song about a love story that happens during the Holocaust is sort of explains why maybe it wasn't a number one hit, you know? And the lyrics there, should they catch us and dispatch us to those separate work camps? I'll think about you, I'll dream about you. I will not doubt you with the passing of time. Should they kill me, your love will fill me as warm as the bullets. I'll know my purpose, this all was worth this and I won't let you down. Um, wow, that's heavy. Is, that is which heavy is, right there. Yeah. Um, and then my other couple of favorites, Every Man Has a Molly.
is, I think, hilarious and raw and emotional as well. And is a, I just love him talking directly to fans in the, in the opening lyrics. And he says, here I am laid bare at the end of my rope. I've lost all hope so long. Molly Conley just broke up with me over the revealing nature of the songs. You goddamn kids had better be gracious with the merch money you spend because for you, I won't ever have rough sex with Molly Connolly again. Here I am laid down at the end of my rope, wishing I had not been born. Now I've spewed too much. I could never shut it up. I thought you should be warned. And then the other two songs, one that he mentions is Admit It. Which is just sort of like a, like standing on a, a pulpit, sort of like raging against the facade of indie rock hipsters, which is very funny and really <laughs> worth reading, even if it was just a poem. And then I Want to Know Your Plans is a very sweet love song. You're what keeps me believing the world's not gone dead. Strengthen my bones, put the words in my head when they pour out to paper. It's all and I think the lyrics are very sweet love song lyrics, but also clever, not like Hey There Delilah, but I think more for a 19 year old seemed very adult to me. So I love the record. Curious what you think. Yeah, I, I really enjoyed it. And uh, there's so many songs that to get into here, because I think there's like 21 tracks on the whole record. And you touched on a few of those tunes. There's another one that really caught me that was uh, Yellow Cat slash Red Cat. Yes. Yeah. I thought that was interesting. Like, just a very unique song concept because he he has these like brief visual snapshots of his friends, and in one instance, his cousin. And they're in a very short amount of time. He just gives you these snippets that tell you a lot about this person. Like, yeah. uh, Well, he talks about his cats. That's the first one. And now they're always going at each other, and he doesn't get in the way. He lets them do it. Then he talks about his cousin Greg, who mocks MTV, but really that mockery he can see is a veil for the guy's own self-loathing. Yeah. Which he says this in like a few lines, like just amazing economy. Then he talks about his friend Lou, who's struggling with drugs, but really just wants romance. You know? Uh, that song really got me because it sort of speaks to this like sort of the sadness, the the sort of the stagnancy, but then the eventual acceptance that most of the people that are close to you, they can maybe evolve, but they don't really change. And you have to sort of just embrace that, embrace who they are. Yeah. Now, now, I, I didn't know he was this young. For a, a 19, 20-year-old kid to write a song like that, with that amount of lyrical depth, it really speaks to something that I've seen as a thread now, because we've discussed a number of uh, records by emo artists. But, you know, he, like a lot of the others, he, he brings so much emotion and conviction to it. But the lyrics, I always find with these emo bands, and all the bands yeah. we discuss go way beyond emo, just visual, descriptive, revelatory lyrics that make you think, that make you want to read the words and really get into what's there. And actually, even though musically it's like quite different, 
it made me think of against me uh, a little bit because Laura Jean Grace, she has a similar Absolutely. approach. Yeah. You know, she and Max Bemis both have the ability to like, this is such a hard thing to do as a songwriter, no matter what the genre, to write something that's personal, but then to somehow within writing something personal, provide like a broader commentary. It's much easier to just write a personal song that's just totally from your perspective and that's it. Or to go to the other end and write something that's purely a commentary. But yep. to somehow merge the personal with something that makes a broader statement, that's really difficult to do. And I think he does that, and I think Largy and Grace does that really well. Yeah, I agree with you. I uh, He's a, a great, and both great live performers, by the way. Um, you know, I've, I've been lucky enough to see both bands, but say anything i think i've seen twice and just a i think he did a i want to say there was an is a real boy anniversary tour um oh really yeah so it would have been 2014 anniversary tour would honor the 10th anniversary of of is a real boy he has an ability to take difficult subjects and actually we talked about this with uh, adam schleisinger as well and founds a wayne uh which while we're recording this, this I think that'll be uh, that'll be the week. This will be that'll be the week behind us. That'll be the yeah. So it already spot. happened. So, so we it already happened. About it. Yeah, right, yeah, right. yeah. Sorry, we're not supposed to talk timelines here, but anyway. But uh, something we had discussed with Adam Schlesinger is uh, the ability to take on really difficult and heavy sort of subject matter and somehow make it digestible. Mm-hmm. And. Uh, I think in that song, maybe as a writer, and it's something meaningful and personal to him, he thought, well, I can take this on and try to communicate it yep. in the context of a pop song. Again, for a 19, 20-year-old kid to make that decision, most songwriters wouldn't want to go there. So it takes some guts, some courage to actually take take on a subject like that. Yeah, I think um, I think it's a, if this is the first you're ever hearing about Say Anything, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening who already like me. I think... The, I think the the follow up to this and some other stuff beyond that is worth is worth listening to. But this this is an album that to be your debut album, and I think a lot of times the debut album is the most emotional and the most raw because, as I think we've said before, and I think this happens with rap artists a lot, specifically because they have to write so many words. Their first album is a lot of times everything they've been thinking about for. 20 years and they've had 20 years to write it and then after that you only have a year or two yeah. years and your experiences for a lot of touring musicians your experience is just touring that's like it you don't live you're not growing up you're not you're getting older but you're not going through school you're not you know what i mean like you're you're the scope of what you're going through is a lot different and i think because of that a lot less relatable to somebody who's listening whose life isn't like that you know yeah, and I think what you're saying is so true because I'm a big believer in the in the dynamic of songwriting that it doesn't just come from you deciding to write. Mm-hmm. The best songs usually come from some sort of experience. It comes from just living and being in different situations, and then the inspiration comes to you. I mean, you can go to the well and try to push yourself, but but that's why so many second records fail. Yeah, because there's no time to get. All the experience that you had accumulated, you know, for 20 years, 25 years, whatever. And then suddenly you're kind of rushed into having to just kind of write for the sake of writing to make a record. Mm -hmm. And that's never as compelling an an environment to to try to create something. 
it's almost like the, these days are over, but it's almost like the right move would have been to sign an artist to a three album deal and don't let him come out with anything or let them come out with anything until the three albums are written. That makes sense. <laughs> you know? Yeah. And then just yeah. take, you know, every 18 months or every 12 months, put out the next record. Release it. Yeah. Yeah. I think that'd be good. Well, this is obviously a 10 Mootloo record for me. Where is it for you? Yeah, it's a 10 Mootloo. I really, uh, again, w- with a lot of the the bands that are in this sort of genre, it's always about the lyrics for me. And he writes some great lyrics. Just There's even just one last line when we wrap up from the song you said, <laughs> Admit It, the uh, anti-hipster anthem. There's so yeah. many great lines, but the one where he says, uh, I spent hours in front of the mirror making my hair elegantly disheveled. Yeah. Yep. That is just it's so great. Wonderful. That's beautiful. It's, <laughs> it reminds me of when we were talking about Tools Anima. That's the song. The song "Anima" about like the takedown of Los Angeles, like this, yeah. <laughs> this just five minute, like just rant about everything you don't like about the people that surround you is very funny. You know? Yeah, and in that song, I liked it at moments. He's like, "I'm not even going to sing this. I'm going to say this." Yes. Yeah. Yep, this is yep. going to be. You're just going to hear what I think. Just me. No singing. Yeah, you for know? sure. <laughs> uh, all right. So. It's listener album time. It is Bruce Springsteen's Nebraska. Which comes to us from Fade the Rally. If you want to suggest an album, again, Apple Podcast Reviews. If you don't use Apple, just go to carllandryrecordclub.com where we have a an index of every album that we've that we've reviewed so far and all the pods there. All right. Let's Here we do it. go, man. Here we go. The boss. It was only a matter of time before we discuss the Springsteen record. You know, it can be challenging with an artist like Springsteen just to find an interesting context to get into the conversation because he's so iconic. And his career has been so well documented. But I actually think this record, Nebraska, gives us that opportunity because I think it's quite unique within his catalog. And uh, I'll just do mm-hmm. a very brief snapshot. I mean, everyone knows Asbury Park and all that. I'll just do a few points. Just You're going to give us a history of Bruce Springsteen? No, no, I'm not yeah. going to do that. Not going to do that. But just, just sort of to give us a context in where this record came in in his career because it's kind of at an interesting crossroads before he really hit the pop big time. You know, so we all know the story of Springsteen coming up in Asbury Park, late 60s. He played in bands like the Castiles, Earth. Uh, there was a band called Steel Mill that he was in with uh, Danny Federici, Vinny Lopez, Vinny Rosslyn, later Stephen Van Zandt, you know, future E Street band members. And that was actually the group with which I think he started to really break out of the tri-state area, which is interesting because his career was built in this area, Asbury yep. Park, Philly. But with that group, I think he did start to make some inroads, get some critical acclaim. Well-documented story, signs to Columbia, first two records, Greetings from Asbury Park, uh, NJ, and The Wild, The Innocent, The E Street Shuffle, had critical acclaim but struggled commercially. And 
when you listen to those albums and think of some of his later work, it kind of makes sense because they're so dense lyrically. And I don't think he'd figured out yet with those albums how to sort of streamline and focus as a pop songwriter. And he became really adept at that later in his mm-hmm. career to take the Springsteen energy and approach and sound, but to make it a pop song because he can write a hell of a pop song. Mm-hmm. So, again, well documented. I think there's been documentaries made about it. He comes to a crossroads, born to run. And basically, at that moment, he needed something that would be commercially viable, or it seems like his time at Columbia might have been short-lived. As the story goes, it took over a year to record. He was actually, when you think of the success of that record, he was actually rather frustrated for the whole recording of that because I think he had a vision of this like wall of sound type of thing that he wasn't always able to communicate. And I think eventually they delivered on that, especially on the title track. But just as he has this big success, he has to stop basically recording for three years because he gets into this protracted legal battle with his manager, former manager, Mike Appel. And that's where I think... During those three years uh, is where his songwriting started to evolve, and he wrote dozens of songs during that time. And I think that time frame, you know, sort of set the stage for him to be able to make a record like Nebraska, because you see the records that came out of that extensive period of writing were Darkness on the Edge of Town, his fourth record, and The River. And if you think of those two albums, they were the, they laid the groundwork, or they were the perfect setup for what was to come. First, Nebraska and then born in the USA, because you started to sort of hear these heavier lyrical themes and... Sort of more focused social commentaries. Mm-hmm. But at the same time, you started to hear the poppier Springsteen, which is like the river, for example, has Hungry Heart. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Lay down your money and you play your part. Everybody's got a hungry heart. Great song. That's probably my favorite Springsteen song. I think those two are the sort of the perfect predecessors to what was to come. So he gets to Nebraska. This was originally recorded as a series of four-track demos that were to then be re-recorded by the E Street Band. Eventually, he and his manager, John Landau, decided that they were just going to release the demos, but not before they actually went in the band and did some sessions with the E Street Band. Those sessions have been called the uh, Electric Nebraska Sessions. And actually, it wasn't for naught because a number of those songs that they did with the E Street Band ended up you know, becoming important songs on Born in the USA, which was the next record, including the title track and Glory Days. But I think what happened was those renditions, those songs, those band songs didn't work for Nebraska. It's a very singular focus to Nebraska, which is 
storytelling, but very somber and reflective. Mm-hmm. And it kind of makes sense as to why they scrapped the band sessions and, and for that set of songs wanted to do something very specific. So this record is basically the boss on uh, vocals, guitar, harmonica, mandolin, glockenspiel, tambourine, Hammond organ synthesizer. But yeah, it's, it really is a solo acoustic record. It's a little more than that, sonically. Just to go through a few of the highlights here, because there's some... He starts with a song, the title track, which is a bold, bold move. Like a Nebraska With a sawed off 14 On my land Through the badlands Of that starting the album with the title track, you consider a bold move. Well, bold no, move? no, not. Oh, uh, okay. <laughs> not, not, oh. oh man, I can feel the. Uh, I can feel the. Uh, no, I'm just going. asking. I'm no, just no, asking. No, no. I'm just asking. Not I'm just asking. The, not because it's the title track, but because of the content of what the song. Is okay. About. Okay. 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 Uh, the song. Uh, just to clarify. Yeah, just to okay. clarify. Okay. The, the, the song is. Uh, it's about Charles Starkweather who murdered 11 people in Nebraska and Wyoming between December 1957 and January 1958, and his girlfriend, Carol, Carol Ann Fugat. I don't know if it's Fugate or Fugat. I'm not sure if that's the... Was that I, guy a working man, or... I'm just... I'm sorry. I'm sorry. I'm <laughs> You're just going to take the piss all out of this. No, 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 no. No, I'm not, I'm not, I'm not. I'm sorry. There's the, there the one. I had the one, and I, I'm... No, no, throw a couple more in there. No, no, it, wouldn't no, no, no. Be, it wouldn't be honest if, uh, if you didn't. Yeah. It had to come. Well, I'll, I'll, I'm gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna cover the whole gamut, the whole gamut of of how I feel. So, yeah. that, but that is obviously partly. How I know I you're kind of getting revved up. You're like a race yeah. car in the red right yeah. now. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but I that that song. I mean, to tackle a, a song about a serial killer, that's mm-hmm. a pretty heavy way to start a record, subject wise, and it kind of sets the tone for the for the whole album. Sort of this. There's a heaviness to it. There's a very visual storytelling style, very specific characters, and you get this very sparse kind of atmospheric production, almost to where you can kind of hear the tape hiss sometimes, which I think is kind of cool, that kind of lo-fi sound. It creates a a sort of a sonic universe. Another tune comes early in the record, uh, Atlantic City. And that that song uses an interesting de- uh, device because the character is fictional, but it makes some uh, reference to something that's real and very specific. Yeah. Again, you know the phrase, uh, uh, "Well, they blew up the Chicken Man in Philly last night, and now they blew up his house too." That is referring to the mob boss Philip Testa. Uh, who was murdered when a bomb was planted in his house in in Philadelphia. So I think by putting those lines at the beginning of the song and giving people something that's actually happened that's in real life, it gives a weight to the song. And you get a sense that this is a character who's run out of options. He's kind of resigned to the sense that, you know, other than getting into a life of organized crime, he doesn't have many choices. And I want to read one few lines from that because it really is an example of how he really paints the the turmoil these characters are going through now i've been looking for a job but it's hard to find there's winners and there's losers and i'm south of the line well i'm tired of getting caught out on the losing end but i talked to a man last night gonna do a little favor for him so he he gives you you know he he puts you in the situation that this character is in 
Another tune that I that I really dig. I'll hit a couple more, and then then then, then you're gonna just cut loose. I know, but <laughs> Mansion on the Hill. The mansion on the hill. At night, my daddy take me and we ride through the streets of a town so sad. I think is a great tune because. It's visual storytelling, but there's more to what is being communicated there than just the images he gives you. It's really, it sort of gives you the image of these characters reveling at this mansion, but it's really a story about haves and have-nots, mm-hmm. sort of working people who are on the outside looking in at, at the wealthy with sort of this sense of mystique, but also this feeling of alienation. It's a really powerful tune. And one last tune that I do want to pinpoint because I think this song kind of exemplifies that most of the characters on this record are dealing with, they're at a crossroads where they're dealing with a very complicated decision or some kind of moral dilemma. And that's the uh, Highway Patrolman. As a band played night of the Johnstown flood I catch him when he Black any brother Man turns his back on his family. Well, he just in that song, the, the main character, Sergeant Joe Roberts, speaks of, you know, the importance of family. This refrain comes throughout the song. You know, a man who turns his back on his family, he ain't no friend of mine. That keeps coming throughout the tune. Basically, he, he works in law enforcement, and his brother is on the other side of the law. And as the song builds, there comes a situation where he gives chase to his brother after he's committed a crime. And in that last moment, he decides to let him drive off and go to Canada. And again, this moral dilemma, this impossible decision this guy has to make, he decides that family is more important than the law in this situation. There's actually foreshadowing to that song at the very beginning that kind of gives you a sense of what's going to happen at the end. He says, well, if it was any other man, I'd put him straight away. Uh, but, it, but when it's your brother, sometimes you look the other way. You know? And I, there's almost like a cinematic quality the way that song ends. Uh, just a few points, and then you, then then we're gonna hit green light, and the race car's yep. gotta go. Mm-hmm. But uh, I love the decision to make an acoustic record out of this because it just feels right for these songs. You know, it, it kind of it gives him an opportunity to really communicate these stories in just a very direct, simple kind of way. And I kind of think it's necessary because you really just want to get every word and every nuance of what he's saying. And I think with a lot of his songs on here and in general. It's like people can relate to the, those feelings of hopelessness, of alienation, of struggle, even if they can't necessarily relate to those situations that those characters are in. And he does have an ability to create something relatable, even if the listener doesn't necessarily can't relate to the particular situation. He has a way of drawing you in and making you empathize with the character. So I think it's interesting. This is an interesting record in his catalog. And it's very interesting to me and almost kind of a surprise that Born in the USA is the next record because he did a total 180. Mm-hmm. And that's big and bright and bombastic and big pop songs. And so he sort of went from one extreme to the other. It's interesting that these two records are sort of juxtaposed within his catalog. So I, I really like this record. I generally, with Springsteen, I, I like certain songs from certain periods. As an overall record, this is probably my favorite one that I've listened to top to bottom. Is a, I think a good a good uh, choice from the listener. Are you a Springsteen guy? Would you uh, say? 
I wouldn't say I'm a Springsteen guy. I appreciate that he's written some some great songs, you know. At one point a while back, I did my little Dancing in the Dark acoustic cover, you know. I, he has some songs that are f- fun to play, if you, you know, that there's something undeniable about them. But mm-hmm. I'm not, I've never seen him live. He's not someone I spend a lot of time listening to. Mm-hmm. I also don't completely understand the the sort of idol worship that exists around him. I, I, I guess I, I guess I understand it on a musical level because there is something about him and his story and his songs that is broadly relatable, you know. But I wouldn't. I'm not like this diehard mega Springsteen fan, but I'm definitely more of a fan than you are. I, I would say, but you know, I appreciate him as a writer more than anything else. I think that's why sure. I like this record so much. You hear sometimes I find the E Street Band can can be a little too bombastic. You it's know, a little horn. much. Yeah, it's yeah. a little much. It's a little over yeah. the top, and it's kind of got this just this thing that almost kind of takes away from the songs. Not they're great musicians, great players, but it's just a little too bombastic. Mm-hmm. I, I I tend to like Springsteen more when he's in these more acoustic, sort of stripped down, quieter settings when I can really just get what he's doing song wise. So that's why I think this one really connected to me. <sighs> okay. <laughs> Here we go. So in this album in particular, I heard more of the influence on the things that I like than I hear in a lot of other Springsteen albums. Specifically some of the artists like Chuck Reagan and Hot Water Music. Like, uh, you know, Gang of Youths, who we talked about. The National, even like, Dave Hawes, who is the singer from The Loved Ones, is from Philly. I hear a lot of it in here. Gaslight Anthem. I would have been her fool And I would have sang out your name in those old high school halls You tell that to Gail if she calls I hear it in this album in particular. Hmm. I hear more of that influence than I hear in other albums. And I do think, you know, that the killers are compared to Springsteen a lot, especially what's it called? Samstown, the, the second album. Waiting on some beautiful boy to, to save you from your old ways. You play forgiveness, watching now. Here he comes. He doesn't look a thing like Jesus, but he talks like a gentleman, like you imagine when you Which is bombastic and silly to a point. And I think that a lot of what I don't like about Springsteen is that he won't admit any of it is silly. There's no, <laughs> there's no like winking or irony or, or sense of humor or like the showmanship is all such false bravado to me. And, and there's no 
there's just like no self-awareness to me. And it, his, so anyway, so I, before I get to the things that I don't like, I, I actually think that the first four songs on this album are good mm. and are uh, eventually by like the middle of the album, I'm just like, I agree that I like the way that it is. I like that it's acoustic. I like that it's dark. You know, there's almost like a Johnny Cashness to the darkness, I think, and reminds me of um, the gentleman who passed away uh, this past year, uh, John Prine. Like there's some Prine in there too. Yeah. It, it does tend to drone, I think, like the longer you go on it. But I think Nebraska, Atlantic City, Mansion on the Hill, and then Johnny 99, which has been covered by, you know, some some good bands of the, the genre of music that has been influenced by Springsteen. Are all very good, and if they if those songs were recorded by those artists that I like, I probably would love those songs. You know, if it yeah. wasn't Springsteen, and I like the timber of his voice. I like how he sings. I even like some of the imagery. By the way, the second concert I ever went to was the Born in the USA tour at the Vet. Ah, uh, really? Yeah, with my dad. I think it was like eight. Uh, was it this like eighty four? Right, something like that. Yeah, is Howard yeah. a big uh, Springsteen fan? No, he just went to every concert. And remember, back in the day, it wasn't small venues when we were growing up. Like every concert that came to town was either the Spectrum or the Vet. Like it was, it was arena concerts. It wasn't as much like you know club shows and things like that. Especially for bands, you know, the popular bands that you knew. There were fewer tours and they would play big places like that. So the first concert I ever saw was the Jackson 5 reunion tour, the Victory Tour. Oh, really? Yeah, Wait, was Michael J- on that? He was on yeah. that, yeah, right. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Torture. I don't know if you remember the song. Was the single, and I saw I saw that with my parents at JFK Stadium, and then wow. the second one I went with my dad to Born in the USA. So I think those songs are good. I didn't pay much attention to the lyrics, and I think maybe it's because you're talking about like these songs are about all of these things instead of just being about. You know, life, I guess. I don't know. Um, I think you mentioned you don't get the devotion. It just seems to me like there is this agreement between everybody that everyone's going to admit, everyone's just going to say that this is the greatest thing. And it isn't. It, 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 there's, there's no need to play. And I think, I think Springsteen has even said this that his image was like constructed and he constructed it and playing the long shows are are like to prove that he could do it to some extent and i think the people who say that they enjoy those shows feel almost a pressure that the liking those shows is performative in some way and in a lot of ways it is tribal like politics can be, or or a lot of fandom, community, the Rice Ricky Sanchez can be tribal in that way. 
just for 50 year old white guys, which I get, I admittedly, I'm not that far off of, but <laughs> there's, there's just something dishonest about it to me. And like, even, and I, I get that this is what fans do, but even when they go, well, you know, born in the USA, dancing in the dark, glory days, those aren't even the good songs. And I'm just like, you're full of shit. No, those, those are, are the songs. Those, those are, are the, the best, best songs. songs. Yeah. yeah. Dancing in the dark. <laughs> Dance in the Dark and Hungry Heart, I think, are, are amazing pop songs. They're not, oh, you know, they're not, I, I wouldn't even call them like rock songs. They're pop songs. Yes, a Glory Days is, I don't know, that song's fucking great. Like, I think Glory Days yeah. is awesome, man, you know? And there's a reason why if you're at a bar and Glory Days comes on, everybody sings along because those songs are fucking great. We don't have to pretend like those aren't the best songs. They are. Yeah, because I think some of those diehards will say, oh, you know, Greetings from Asbury Park, or those first mm -hmm. two records, you know, when the, when everyone was comparing him to Dylan. Yeah. See, he had that thing, and that's something I was thinking about. This has happened to a number of artists. Every time the rock press proclaims someone the, the new Dylan or the next Dylan, yeah. it's like the worst thing that could happen to them. And then they yeah. have to, because that's an impossible thing to live up to. And he had that early on, but he, he got past it very quickly. But to me, you, you, you keyed in on something that I thought was interesting. You, you, the community around him, you know? Right. Like a lot of music sometimes, not all music, but for some bands that build this huge following, it's like it's almost like sometimes the music is secondary maybe in some way. Mm -hmm. yeah. It's about the community, the experience. And we've talked about this ourselves, that the music we love, the nostalgia, the memory. Mm -hmm. You know, if you were a fan of The Boss, you might have looked back at that concert back in 84 and that might have been a huge part of your your falling in love with music in the first place you know mm -hmm. and yeah and yep. your and your brother likes it and your and your father likes it and y'all go as a family to the Springsteen show I think sometimes music becomes more about that and it's almost it's almost not it's beyond the music it's the experience it's the community it's a rite of passage it's how you identify yourself yeah, I, and there's nothing wrong with that, I don't think. I, and I, and this is buried 50 minutes into the po in the podcast, <laughs> so I don't have to, like, I, there's nothing harmful about any of it, you know? I just, I just don't get it. And, and I, I think there is something performative about it that is not totally genuine. I said that, I said once that Springsteen and his fans are the music version of Kobe and his fans. And Kobe, like, and you know, rest in peace, Kobe. And I, I gained, the older I got, I gained more of an appreciation for Kobe, actually, you know, uh, watching other players. He, but there was something about him that was always trying to prove something that nobody was asking him to prove, you know? And all of his fans were ignoring like we're, we're all in on it and everybody's in on it. And like, why are we pretending like that Kobe is the fourth best player when Kobe's obviously the 17th best player or something. But I, th I think there's something about that to this and no one likes four hour concerts. You'd have to be a, <laughs> just, especially 50 year old guys. There's just no way. There's just, it's impossible. So. It's, it's like the Grateful Dead uh, in some way, if you think about it. 
you know, with the with mm-hmm. the dead. I mean, I, I'm a fan of the dead. They wrote some great songs. Again, not a huge mega fan where I go to shows and stuff. But for people who love the dead, it's the same kind of thing. There are times when they talk about the experience or their connection to that band. It's like the music is kind of one piece of it, but it's not the whole piece. Right. I think the and, thing but, you react to is you, it's like, it's like there's some artists that get to a point where the, the cult-like fandom around them is such that you're, 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 it's blasphemy if you criticize it. Right, yes. Which makes me want to criticize it more, obviously. <laughs> it's just my nature, you know? Like, it's just my nature to be a, a pain in the ass about those things, which, you know, I sometimes actually even feel bad about. You know, they're just, people are just trying to enjoy uh, Bruce Springsteen. I just wish they would post fewer pictures about it. I gave, I gave my boss shit. My boss went to see him on Broadway, which is starting up again, I guess, in, in July. I saw something about that, yeah. And he, he, like, you know, he paid, probably paid $400 a ticket to see it. And I was just like, like what the fuck were you doing, bro? Like, why, why? He's like, I loved every minute of it. He's like, I was like, no, you didn't. Come on. You didn't love every minute of it. But so I, I think this more than any other Springsteen record that I've listened to, and I've listened to plenty, represents, represents more of the influence that I like than other albums. And I, this one doesn't like actively bother me or anything. And I, I think it's a, a pretty decent, it's a, it's a grip it, rip it and move on for me, but it's a, it's a decent record for it's, sure. It's a good grip it, rip it and move on. Yeah. 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 And yeah. you, and, and you mentioned something about, I, I think what you react to is you find there to be something inauthentic about him. Yes. Yeah. And, and I think part of that is I, I notice a lot of the bands that both you and I like, even if it's heavy and sad and emotional, there is a bit of humor underneath it. There is an mm-hmm. element of not taking it too seriously. Like, a, like the first band we discussed, Say Anything, there was some heavy lyrics, and this guy is pouring his heart and soul out there, but underneath it, it's like you said, there's a wink, you know? There's, yep. They're not taking themselves too seriously. And I think maybe what you're reacting to, if I can just get to the core DNA, is you feel that he takes himself too seriously and that the people around him also take him too seriously. In, yeah, in a way, nobody's admitting that this is kind of funny. This is contrived like, maybe in a yeah, way. Yeah, yes. Uh, a little bit. Yeah, of and, course. And I, I'm more of a fan, but I think sometimes with the E Street Band musically, there's just that that abrasive quality to Not abrasive, but just sort of over-the-top element of, you know, the horns and just the bombast of it that takes me away from the songs i that's why i like this record because you strip all that stuff away and it does feel a little more direct and meaningful to me mm-hmm. when uh you know when you strip away some of the excess some of the not extraneous things but the things that define it but make it feel a little less direct or resonant in some way the best band from new jersey is skid row <laughs> Like let's say, let's be honest about. Oh <laughs> uh, wow, that's a that's a bold. That, I mean, there's a lot of bands at it. What about Bon Jovi? Bon Jovi's better than Springsteen. Come on. So who else is from New Jersey? There's more. There's got to be more. Are there? Let's see. Well, what are no, the other we'll Jersey bands? Uh, um, well, you wait, think Springsteen? You think the ball? I think Bon Jovi. Bands from New 
Jersey. Skid Row. How, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm well, so Skid Row is from New Jersey, even though Sebastian Bach is not from New Jersey. He is from Canada. Uh, he was not the original singer of, of Skid Row. So Armor for Sleep, they don't count. Um, boy, there's just this is not really an uh, Ours, who are great, who you wouldn't know. We should do them at some point. Forty below summer, no. I, I mean, there's. It's not a great list if we're being honest about this. I was gonna say I Billy know somebody, Joel, but Billy Joel is Staten is uh, Long Island, so yeah. Either I'm way. sure somebody's listening to this and screaming the name of a a great New Jersey band, but I don't know. There's not like a. There's not, I'm I'm looking here. Debbie Harry. Oh, there she's we go. From Jersey. There you go. Debbie Harry is from Jersey. Patty Smith. From Jersey. There yeah, we go. There's more than we're realizing. I just think in time, the those fr- people aren't associated with Jersey. With Jersey anymore. stays associated with Jersey. Yeah. Uh, the Misfits are from Jersey. Okay. And the singer from television is from New Jersey. But so there but we go. It, and it, I'm, move, it's I'm not moving. It's part of to how they define themselves. It's sort of like with the boss, it's, it's part of the whole story, the whole mystique, you know? Yep. Yep. For sure. Um, yeah, grip it, rip it, move on, but a positive experience, not a stay free magoose. A grip it, rip it, and move on. And you, are you a 10 moot I'm on a this? 10 moot on this. I, I, I like this record, you know. Uh, again, not, not a huge Springsteen guy, but I like these moments where some of the excess is pulled away and it's just him and his songs. I, I can appreciate it. Okay. Uh, like I said, check out the website, carlandrewrecordclub.com, submit your album, and uh, that's all we got. We'll see you next week. Stay free, my goose.